Hello, this is Scott Jens. Welcome to Sandbox Stories. Welcome to the Sandbox Story, which is an interview of Dr. Ken Lewenda. He's an industry veteran of hospital-based care, Optometric Association volunteerism, regulatory affairs, and so much more. Dr. Lewenda, I'm thrilled to have you on Sandbox Stories. Thanks for having me, Scott. I really appreciate uh, uh, you entertaining having me on and more than happy to uh, spend whatever time we need today and try to see if I can probably uh, uh, we provide not only you, but other people that may be listening to this, some information, a little bit of history and everything. Thank That's you. That's really what this is about. And so let's just start with this. You've resided and practiced all across the country. Currently, you live in Montreal. Tell us about your Correct. wife, who's Canadian, and what you're doing in Montreal these days. Okay, well, my I moved from uh, California to actually Vancouver, British Columbia to be working up over there. I was in Los Angeles for about uh, pretty close to 40 years, uh, private practice in West Hollywood. And when I went up to uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, uh, I happened to have met my wife from there, and she lived actually in Montreal. Uh, she's an art teacher, retired art teacher. She grew up in New Brunswick. And the decision was for me to either have her come to Vancouver or possibly to California or me coming back to the East Coast. I grew up in New York City, and I kind of missed the Four Seasons, and so for me, it was kind of a natural uh, progression, and so uh, we're about an hour from the border, and uh, uh, my home is still the U.S., so, uh, uh, but Montreal is wonderful. I love it up here, and the people are wonderful, and the city is great, so uh, uh, unlike Los Angeles, uh, uh, with all the congestion and everything else that you have, uh, it's a more comfortable, more relaxed uh, place to live. And obviously the pandemic era changed how everyone connects to their kids and grandkids, but you've got a bunch. Tell us about them. Yeah, my son uh, lives in Washington State. I have two kids. Uh, my son lives in Washington State. He's a radiation oncologist and has been practicing there now for three years. My daughter lives, uh, Karen, uh, she lives in uh, Los Angeles and she's doing uh, software sales uh, and uh, uh, does that with uh, real estate and, and also uh, uh, it's, it's quite good. The only problem is we're 3,000 miles away and the pandemic, of course, has not made it very easy to travel. So uh, uh, we communicate by phone or by uh, FaceTime or other means. So I can't wait for things to loosen up. So let's get into you being a professional. You know, you were telling me leading up to this interview that one of the things you've done recently is taken several executive education courses. What's driven you to do that? Because you describe yourself as at a semi-retired point in your career. I'm really interested in what you've done there. Well, I've been working uh, uh, with the Vermont State Board of Optometry. Uh, I've been working also with Arbo. Uh, I'm serving on a number of committees with Arbo, um, a Judicial Council slash Resolutions Committee, I'm also on their OE Tracker Committee, plus I'm planning on running uh, this year for the Arbo Board of Directors. Uh, having also served in California for eight years, uh, I was appointed by Governor Schwarzenegger and also in BC. 
I'm in a unique position where I can be able to be able to look at uh, the standard of care, protection of the public, and what's been happening with technology uh, there has been big advances. And uh, what I've seen uh, that we have to be very, very careful. We have to, as regulators, be able to see what's out there. We have to make sure that uh, these technologies fit into a certain amount of, uh, let's say, safety clarity and it's going to be helping patients. So what really prompted me to take the classes is one of them, of course, is uh, leading basically digital change uh, in healthcare. Another one is removing barriers to change. And one of the reasons for that is, is that to make any change, if there is going to be, and, I, and there's major, major changes going on. Just today, Microsoft uh, wound up purchasing Nuance, which uh, is uh, involved uh, with uh, electronic health records. Uh, they're also involved with the ba basically with Siri, making the job easier. All these type of things will make patients, uh, the time with the doctor is probably more efficient, getting all this information. But we're also looking at online technology and what's been happening in the profession. And what really also prompted me is to see what the, the, the difficulty has been. Uh, the... Change is very difficult. Status quo, of course, could be very, very easy. We've been practicing for years, and that's not to say that that's going to go away. But we have to find ways of adapting and utilizing technology in a safe manner. And that's the reason why I took these classes, uh, one at Harvard Medical School and two at Wharton, to be able to see if there is change, how do we remove those barriers to change? What is necessary? What are the steps? And I do think as a regulator, it's important for regulators to be able to see this as well. So that's what prompted me. I see it from the regulatory insights and leadership perspective. Is there a learning for the independent eye care practitioner about the importance of considering what I'd consider it to be a little bit of alternative education on the idea of executive leadership, for example, digital transformation? I think that seems applicable to the ECP in practice, too, as they run their business. Well, I think it's very, very important. I think technology, uh, we have in our practices uh, uh, a variety of pieces of equipment, uh, you know, from OCTs, uh, visual fields. Well, what's transpiring now? There are visual fields that you can do on iPads. There's uh, basically, uh, with autorefraction, there are software programs that are out there. But again, there are a lot of uh, areas where these technology classes, or let's say being introduced to uh, new technology, how do you incorporate that into practice? The standard of care cannot go away. We have to be able to educate. We have to be able to inform. And for this reason, what is very, very important is that you have to have people, whether they be educators, whether they be regulators, you need to also have people in the insurance area, vision care insurance area, uh, basically researchers, to be able to look at these technologies and to see how they fit in. Because not all of them are going to fit in, and not all are going to provide the standard of care. It's educating also uh, our, our profession. And uh, fortunately, actually back in 2009, uh, I had a paper on ethically incorporating uh, uh, Tele, telehealth, telemedicine, and this is back prior to the pandemic because I saw what was happening uh, with these, a lot of these online companies, the for-profit companies that were trying to 
not only promote that, but they made the patients feel or the public feel that that was an exam. Well, that was one area. But again, I was very appreciative of the fact that the AOA decided that this was definitely a topic of, uh, that was needed uh, to be discussed. And then, in fact, they actually uh, did a white paper more recently to update the 2017 on telehealth telemedicine. And this month, uh, the March-April AOA focus says keeping the medicine in telemedicine. So I think that uh, the schools of optometry, uh, I think it's important. I think the younger doctors that are out there uh, uh, probably are more adept to using technology than, let's say, a lot of senior doctors who may be comfortable to a point, but we're very, very much on our telephones. We're in with computers. We're on with iPads. And the ease of being able to handle this, I think, can easily be done. But I think we have to get everybody on board in a coordinated manner. And that's, that's, that's one of the reasons. But I definitely think that education is important. And I think our association will probably move in that direction as well. I know, I know for a fact that uh, a lot of politicians and legislators, it's being patient-driven. I think healthcare is going to be more patient-driven. We have to have access to care. We have to be available for our patients. If we're living in a rural area and doctors aren't that uh, close to the doctor, how do you be able to uh, get healthcare in that direction? So uh, uh, we're, in a, we're in an exciting time. We're at an inflection point. We either go in one direction or we go in another. But uh, I'm very happy to see that these changes are going on, but they have to be done in a correct way. That's a very deep summary, and I hope that before we're done today, I'm going to get back to that a little more deeply. I want to get to better understand you and, and what drives you. Uh, you said you grew up in New York. You grew up in the Bronx. You told me that your dad was a baker at the family bakery near Yankee Stadium. Mm -hmm. What was it like growing up mm -hmm. there, and, and what did you learn from your family growing up? Well, you know, it's very, very interesting, your appreciation for little things. You know, we, we grew up uh, in the Bronx, and basically – uh, a six-story uh, building. Uh, there was like maybe 50 families that lived in a building. You'd just immediately go outside and there was friends out there and parents were always uh, available. If parents worked, like both of my parents worked, uh, you know, you always had family out there or friends, moms or dads or whatever. So it was a very communal type of situation. And it wasn't a type of an area where everybody's driving Mercedes and Cadillacs. So you get an appreciation for, uh, uh, for the things in life. And uh, education, for me, was one of the things that I always wanted to pursue. And uh, I was the first in my family to actually go to college and graduate and uh, to, to go into optometry school. And so uh, there's a sense of um, fulfillment that you know, a lot of times people can go in big directions, whether it be law or other, other things. But uh, I, I found that it was very, very good uh, for me. And uh, I really appreciate where I'm at, where I am in life right now for those things, because you can kind of reflect back. And you ended up going over to UCLA for undergrad, and then you went to the Los Angeles College of Optometry, which was then on the USC campus as the predecessor for Southern California College of Optometry. You graduated in 1970, and I'm really interested in your perspective, sharing it with the audience about what education was like then and how you can juxtapose it to education today. Well, our class was actually the first of the four-year uh, curriculum. 
So we, uh, prior to that, uh, was a three-year curriculum to optometry school. And at that time, uh, it, they just started. They just started uh, basically uh, uh, working with uh, technology, uh, with, well, with like almost like the beginnings of auto uh, refraction. I remember one of my term papers uh, happened to be on uh, fiber optics. And uh, with fiber optics, again, that's one of the areas that was also quite new at that time. But we were starting at that time as well. Uh, the crux was primary care was starting to be more emphasized. At that time in California, the rules and regulations of uh, therapeutics and TPAs, uh, we weren't able to use uh, therapeutics at that point. And, you know, we, we called it the saline generation. You have some type of irritation to your eye, you put saline, and that was it. Uh, so in the beginning, uh, we were probably at the forefront of, uh, of, of the beginning of where our profession is leading today. Education was very highly uh, with pathology, uh, of course, dispensing and things like contact lenses and all the subjects that we discussed. So it's probably not much different now, except uh, I think we are really realizing that primary care is emphasized a lot more. And I think it was a little bit less, it wasn't, let's say, 80% of our curriculum. For us, it was probably 40 to 50%. So I think we're moving more into that higher degree of primary care education. And you mentioned that you started a practice in California. You were in West Hollywood. Uh, you ran that practice for a long time. What was your practice like? Well, it was a very unique practice. Uh, West Hollywood, uh, if uh, none of your listeners know, uh, is uh, a very, very vibrant community, very artsy community, a lot of directors, a lot of people in the entertainment business, uh, a lot of pop, uh, uh, let's say, people in the music business. So uh, what was very, very unique and very, very different from my office as opposed to a lot of other offices is people were coming in also not only for a very, very good examination, but they were also coming in for a style. They, they were coming in for a unique product. And I happen to be fortunate because we had a lot of companies uh, that surrounded my office that were new up-and-coming companies. I can mention LAI Works, uh, which was also in West Hollywood. Uh, you had Oliver Peoples. You had, at that time, uh, uh, Aptik Bhutti. And these people catered to a lot of people. They were opticians, but they were transforming eyewear into something that was fashionable which again, used to be very utilitarian. You put on a pair of glasses, it could be like a combination frame or something that was in plastic. It would be something you probably wouldn't want to wear, the, the old compared to what they had now. So it was a very, very wonderful area to practice and it gave me great opportunity to actually connect with a lot of these people who I'm still in contact with today. So uh, uh, it's, uh, it's great. Also in that area, we had a major hospital, still is there, of course, Cedar Sinai uh, uh, Medical Center. And
Can you go over that again with regards to the fact of uh, with the doctor? And, yeah, let's uh, say that technology is available. The doctor expresses with a patient where the patient is not actually in the clinic for a couple of years, but they fulfill essentially uh, a complete eye examination through use of technology that's available to them through their computer or iPad at their home. But the doctor's still in control and the doctor's writing the prescriptions and managing the patient. Is there a day where an optometrist could actually manage a patient where they see them in the clinic less often and do so ethically? I think that the laws and the regulations are probably going to, if they did do something along that type of line, I think there are certain conditions that maybe, uh, uh, let's say contact lens wearers, being able to see fitting of contact lenses, refractions, these type of things. but. When it comes to uh, technology, and the, there are major, major advances, there are, are units, for example, uh, that people can be able to measure their pressures at home. There, as I mentioned earlier, also uh, iPad uh, software where people can be able to do their visual fields. Uh, and there's also other pieces of equipment that are out there where uh, basically retinal photos can be done. So I, I do envision a time that that probably will occur. And I do think that maybe within the next five to 10 years, is it going to be as good as an in-person examination? I don't think so. But I do think that there are ways that we can be able to uh, have the patient seen and being under the doctor's care being able to at least have like this conversation that we're having, if there was an eye irritation or, or so. Uh, there's a lot more that you can see in person that you can't necessarily be able to accomplish uh, on, a, on a Zoom or a, a photograph or so. Uh, but I, I do think that technology is moving in such a direction that what may transpire is, is that I think healthcare is definitely going to change. I think the CMS is moving in a direction in uh, uh, such where they want to be able to get more care to people. And if we're only seeing 30% of the population and there's another 70% of the population that's out there that doesn't know or even have ever had an examination by an optometrist, that's an area that truly concerns me. And I think that if we look at technology as an ad advantageous way of somehow finding out, seeing the public that is not getting their eyes examined and having them seen by a, uh, an optometrist or an ophthalmologist or whatever. Uh, but screening type of devices that may be out there that, uh, again, may be helpful. 
but not as complete examinations. But I think as a referral source, I think that's probably where we're going to be headed because we need a healthier population. And with the prevalence of diabetes and all these uh, conditions and people living longer and in situations with uh, AMD, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's invariably that they're going to be needing eye care services. And uh, I do think something will move in that direction. But I think it's going to be a gradual, won't be a slug. I think things are going to move along a little bit faster. But it's, it's, it's definitely something that uh, there'll be needing to be expertise. Yeah, you've looked and at this. if we don't do it. <laughs> yeah, you've looked at this for a long time. And your point is we've got to have groups, and you've been part of those, that look at these emerging questions so we can think about the hypotheticals. And I'm appreciative of you grabbing the hypothetical. The, the sense I take is that even in a regulatory approach, there is effort being made to look at how are these kind of technologies applied in an ethical and doctor-centered way. And ultimately, what resonated with me was your comment about seeing more patients that haven't been seen. The danger is those that want to take advantage of them from a very consumer-based point of view and sidestep the doc. And that's where doctors are fearful for losing patients or losing control. Um, I suppose that in this consumer ex expansion of healthcare, optometrists and regulators are going to have to be very careful about where that line is. Yes, absolutely. The, uh, the, the people that are out there that are looking at uh, what they classify as an examination so they can get prescription glasses that they have to be knowledgeable. And I think this is where the association, it's very important, is to educate the consumers with whether it be in magazines. That's one of the uh, reasons why I've been serving uh, and I'm very happy to be serving on the communications division, the content review board of the American Optometric Association, because we provide content to people, whether they're looking online looking at basically Google or other type of means to be able to get information, but to better inform the, uh, the public of what optometrists do, what the difference is between ophthalmology and optometry, and what is a complete examination. There's a lot of resources out there that people can go to. So I think our association does a good job. Can they do more? Of course. Uh, but uh, even during the Olympics, there's going to be uh, uh, spokespeople that are going to be uh, uh, working on behalf of informing uh, the public on what's transpiring and where we're, where we're basically helping out. So I do think that it is a very slippery slope, uh, and you have to educate the consumers, and this is where the regulators have to be concerned. When they look at telehealth or they look at telemedicine, they don't just look at this as a convenience and it's a savings for the patient. But is this going to be protective of the patient? Are we doing a service by saying that this technology is okay when, in fact, it may not be? But you might be able to say this can be done if it's done in this particular type of way. So we're out there uh, very, very – we're looking at all of those factors. And I can understand where the uh, practicing optometrist is. And, you know, they're looking at people going online. And if we really want to look at this, there's always going to be – glasses being dispensed and contact lenses being dispensed. But again, my view, and this is my view, is that there are very successful practices that will maintain and still do what we've been doing for long periods of time. I see the movement really exponentially moving into primary care. 
So I think that uh, I, I sometimes say that the ship may have sailed if people are going to be looking at uh, maintaining practices and profit is only going to be dependent upon selling of eyeglasses or contact lenses. That's why these other companies may be wanting to get in there. They want to sell product. They want to be able to capture the consumer. But that might be uh, where that slippery slope is. The consumer may be basically not being seen properly. But those people may not have been seen properly because they may be part of that 70%. So we've got to be able to look at how we capture that. And that's where I think this education is going to be coming in. I'm excited about the future. I mean, I think optometry is a great profession. Uh, I think that where we're headed is definitely at a point where uh, this inflection point that I mentioned, we're either going to go in one direction or we're going to go in the other. And I think we're tending toward going in the correct uh, direction. And I think we are going to be inclusive and a little bit more open uh, to, uh, to that change. Well, one more thing about you personally. Uh, you do a lot of social media and you are a photographer. And from time to time, you've put out some really compelling images that you've taken. Tell us about your social media activity and your photography. Well, what I've been doing, I would say, for the last four or five years uh, is uh, on LinkedIn, for example, I have right now pretty close to uh, almost 30,000 eye care professionals in the U.S. as well as worldwide that I connect with. And what I've been doing is uh, I have uh, many sources of, uh, of information that comes to me on a daily basis that are all eye care related. And uh, for that reason, I think it's kind of a good resource. Uh, AOA does their resource. I know that there's other, uh, mine isn't one that's a social, uh, like a Facebook page type thing, but it's more information to articles and whether it be talking about telemedicine, whether it be talking about education. And that's another area that I'm also very, very involved in is as we're, as we're moving forward uh, is uh, uh, to be able to provide uh, information about where education is available. So I'm being able to be another resource that's out there. And to me, that has been very, very satisfying because you can wind up linking in with a lot of people and it's a very, very good resource. And on Facebook, uh, I, you know, when you combine all of those, it can be up to almost 35,000 social media followers specifically. So I take a lot of joy in doing that. It does take a lot of time, but that's one of the things when you're semi-retired, you do have that time. With my photography, uh, I actually didn't get into photography until much later, in fact, until I moved here. Uh, and what I found was, is that what I really enjoyed doing the most is I loved doing landscape photography. I loved doing architectural photography and taking a picture of a building. But where I have always been fascinated, I've always liked abstract art. And uh, from my first days of uh, going to uh, modern art museums and looking at Kandinsky's or Moreau, or uh, you look at uh, uh, basically uh, Picasso and all of these things, I'm thinking that to me is very, very interesting. But how can I do something with my photography? So what I have done over the years is fortunately with uh, digital applications on my iPad or uh, actually on my iPhone, but mostly with my iPad, I take a picture and I can break down that picture and digitally create an image that is unlike what you're actually seeing. It could be a picture of, let's say, LA's Disney Hall, but comes out looking something completely different, like a shell of something. 
Uh, and to me, I find that really rewarding, at least for me. I enjoy doing it. And the thing is, is that uh, it, it gives me another means of expression, of uh, taking things and uh, kind of deconstructing it and then trying to construct it into something different. And maybe that's a part of what I've been all my life trying to do is kind of look at things that are out there and maybe deconstructing and reconstructing. And maybe it's the part of that relevance that, uh, you know, you think about, why do you do volunteer stuff? Well, maybe that's a little bit of it. You want to be able, because a lot of times, and I think that this is important for your viewers, is that I think what's most important as a volunteer uh, or as any person doing anything there's always going to be people that are going to like what you're doing, and there's going to be people that look at, mm, I don't I don't think that that's a great thing or whatever. So you're going to have uh, positive and negative input. But I have found that, you know, if you think you're moving in the right direction and you are, are satisfied that that may be the area, your distractors may be out there and there are people that are going to be opposed. But it's a matter of being able to talk to people reasonably, be able to move them. Because I know the status quo, as we, start, we talked about in the beginning, it's so easy. The status quo is so easy because we've been doing it day after day after day. But we've done a lot since this pandemic. What have we done? And it's, you know, fortunately for the government, they look at CMS reimbursements. We look at uh, telehealth, telemedicine, which, again, was not very utilized before. But we still had to see patients. So things are rapidly changed. So it's like things that happen in life that we have no control over change inevitably other things. And it's kind of like rapid advancement. And so I think that in many ways, the sadness of the pandemic and the loss of lives and everything else, and a lot of doctors not being able to get back to practicing the way that they would like to be practicing, I think has done something. And maybe that's the breaking up and kind of moving on and recreating. And uh, so I think just uh, like a lot of people, uh, it's, it's something if you feel you're moving in that right direction, but you have to try to bring people along in a proper way. But I want optometrists to know that optometry is a great profession, will always be, we're moving in that right direction. And if we can leave a message that to me, I think will resonate is that if we look at where we are and where we're going and where we're headed. There's a lot of great opportunity out there and you just need to get involved. I know Scott and I, we've been involved over the years and we need to be able to encourage people uh, out there and we need to be inclusive of who the doctors are out there. That includes doctors that are in private practice, hospital-based practices, uh, employed ODs, whether they be they're all part of the family and we have to be able to encourage this so it's uh i think when we get the family together we're a very very strong entity and i think that we can move the profession along in a very very effective way so um, well dr ken lawenda this has been a great conversation and i can't thank you enough for sharing your positive constructive and inspiring stories thanks for giving us so much uh, to think about well, thank you for having me, Scott. I really appreciate that. And I can't wait to see you at our next meetings. I hope we see each other soon. And to the audience, as always, thank you for attending and paying attention to Dr. Luenda's incredible stories. Until my next Sandbox story, be great at all you do.